that's fantastic. Uh, and we will, all right, we're recording here and we'll get started in three, two, one. <coughs> and welcome back to another edition of Sideline Sessions with Wesley Sykes. I am, of course, Wesley Sykes, the managing editor of Coach and Athletic Director, training and conditioning and winning hoops brands for great America media services. And you can listen to all of our previous episodes anywhere you can access podcasts, as well as any of our websites. That's coachad.com, training-conditioning.com, and winninghoops.com. And be sure to follow all of our brands on Twitter. Uh, that's at coach underscore ad, uh, at train condition, at winning hoops, and then myself, as always, if you like, at Wesley Sykes underscore. Uh, and today we welcome to the program Andre Lachance and JF Menard. Uh, authors of the new book, Team Chemistry, which hit hit bookstores uh, April 19th, so very exciting, one day later. Uh, thank you both for taking the time to join us today. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and what inspired you to write Team Chemistry. I, I, I can start. So um, so thanks for having us, uh, first and foremost. So um, I'm based in Montreal, um, spend most of my career as a coach, uh, coaching uh, the Canadian national team, the French national team. Uh, did some uh, also scouting for the Yankees as well in the past. I'm sorry about that. If you're a Red Sox fan, that's okay. <laughs> no hard feelings. Um, yeah, yeah, no hard feelings. Nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, along the way, I did uh, lots of um, coach education workshop in many other countries. And now my um, most recent role is the Director of Human Performance Services at uh, Cirque du Soleil, which is uh, based in, in, in Montreal here. Um, I can tell you a lot about how this came. This book came to life um, with great partnership with, uh, with with JF, and he can tell you a little bit about our story a little bit later. A little bit later, but uh, overall, this is something that we've always wanted to do together uh, because we built that relationship over time that we uh, highly value both of us, um, and and we think we we are a good complement to each other uh, as far as uh, as uh, what we've done uh, in our career so far. Um, and, and the product is there for, for coaches to use. I'll let JF just expand on that a little bit, so, but that's my little piece about myself. Thanks, Andre. Thanks, Wesley, for having us. This is, this is great. Um, so I'm a mental performance coach. That's my, uh, that's my profession. That's my expertise. And I have a business called Cambio Performance. For those of you who speak Spanish a little bit, Cambio means change in Spanish. I use a K for Cambio for marketing purposes. It's sexier than C. So, uh, <laughs> um, so essentially, I split my time doing some one-on-one -on -one coaching with Olympic athletes, pro athletes, um, NFL players, NHL players, um, a lot of Olympians here for Canada. I've been to the last four Olympic Games. I've wow. uh, been part of a lot of successful files. Very fortunate to be around some great winners, some great champions. And um, I also do a lot of keynote speaking and giving workshops, keynotes in the, in the sports sector, in the business sector. And um, I actually worked at Cirque du Soleil a long time ago, from 2018 to 2013. That's where I started my career. And I've been I've had my business for the last 10 years now. And um, so this book, um, <laughs> it's been a long time then that since Andre and I have known each other. He was actually one of my university professors at the University of Ottawa back in, oh, about 20 years ago. That ages us a little bit by saying that, um, but uh, he was such a great, a great teacher, Wesley. You know, some of these people that you meet at some point, you just got to keep around in your life. Mm -hmm. And Andre has been a great mentor of mine for the past 20 years. And I actually use them a lot in my business to give keynotes and workshops. And, uh, and we always said that we wanted to write a book. 
So, uh, you know, saying one, saying something is one thing, but actually doing it is another thing. And uh, it's just this pandemic really forced us to really sit down and, and actually write the, the, uh, the, uh, the actual book. So uh, we chose the, the, the title Team Chemistry, uh, mainly because it's an expression we use in sport to explain when a team works, they gel, they work well together. And actually, the expression is used in French as well, la chimie d'équipe. And the French version of this book is going to come out in the fall of this year. Um, and ironically, uh, Andre and I both didn't like chemistry at all when we were in high school. Uh, we actually hated the topic. Just thinking about it once. Uh, three of us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, three of us. Well, three of us, there you go. Just thinking about it, I feel like I want to vomit. Uh, but, if, but if I do remember something, and I'm assuming the same thing for you, Wesley, and for those of you who are listening in, is the famous period, periodic table of elements. Mm-hmm. You know, those little squares, you have 120-some organized a certain way. And by combining some of them, you get molecules. So what we actually did with the book is we created a new periodic table of elements, but for coaching and uh, leadership skills. And, and by combining these different elements, you get your own coaching molecules based on the need you might have in the context you're in as a coach or a leader. And so um, Andre and I had, a, had so much fun. We, you know, starting by post-its, writing some ideas on post-its, putting it up on a wall. And we had so many ideas, but we came up with these 30 elements that uh, it's not a recipe. You don't need to use all 30 of them. But, the, but the, the, the idea is to, you know, take whatever makes sense for you and create your own molecules that can help you become a better coach in whatever situation you're in. And, uh, it's, and it's written in a modular way, which means you don't need to read one chapter to understand the next one. You can bounce back from chapter 22, 4, 17, 12. Um, yeah, so Andre, I don't know if I missed anything, but essentially that's how, uh, that's how it came alive. And that's the way we structured the book. And actually, this is how we wrote the introduction also. So if you had a chance to look at the introduction, we explained a little bit how everything started when I was in a, in a convention, a coaching convention in Cuba. And then the, the, I was just finishing my keynote presentation. And then the, the guy after me, I think it was from Mexico. I don't remember his name, but he was so boring. Like you have no idea. And I, I you know, when you're in, in a, an audience and you need to try to stay focused, but at the same time, you start, your head starts to spin a little bit and start thinking about other things. And I started to think, I don't know, how that table of elements came to mind. I said, okay, maybe there's a structure there. So I started to draw things on a piece of paper and eventually sent a, a text message to JF where it was about to uh, give um, a keynote speech to a, a big company in Canada. And then this is how everything everything started after that. So it was a great collaboration um, through this process to arrive today with, with the finished product. I love that. I think that's a brilliant idea. And you guys uh, were, were apparently paying more attention in chemistry class than you probably gave yourselves credit for, because you know, I think that that's, again, a, a pretty great idea. And, and maybe if maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but it sounds like uh, that, you know, you, you can almost predict team chemistry through this book here based on, you know, your own teachings as a coach. Uh, into how you want to apply that to your team here is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, totally. I think I think you're making a great connection here. That you know, if you want to get to a level of high team chemistry, there's a great uh, responsibility um, for the coach with regards to his or her leadership. It's it's directly connected. So the way you behave, the way you teach, the way you give feedback to the athletes on the team. 
the way you make interventions, um, the way you behave as a human being also, will all have an impact on how the team collectively will gel, bond, and perform well collectively, regardless of, of, of the sports you're in. Um, so, and, and we try to make those, those connections in the book also. It's not only about the athletes working well together, but it's about how you as a coach, you can work well with the athletes, and you as a coach, how you can work well also with, with the other coaches on, on your team also, and the support, support personnel that uh, gravitates um, around, around the team as well. So it's not only a one, like JF mentioned, it's not a recipe. It's not, um, uh, it's not a, a team building book where we're giving you activities um, that you should do. We're giving you some, but overall, it's all about, uh, about connections, about communication, collaboration in order to reach your collective goals. And what I can add to that, Wesley, is mm -hmm. um, just to piggyback a little bit more on the team building stuff. We, we all make that mistake. We think that to have team chemistry, we got to do weekend getaways with the teams or like, you know, they sing Kubaya together while holding hands. Like, yeah, that stuff can be fun and it can make you laugh and it can create some spark. But team chemistry is much more than that. You know, it's, it's, about, it's about creating a positive team culture. It's about having a clear DNA for your team. Like, uh, what are your values? Like, how many times do we spend some time talking about, you know, our mission or values for a team? And then we just put that in a drawer somewhere and we don't talk about it anymore. Like, to actually bring it out in every checkpoint during the season, talk about this. Where are we at with these? Um, and another thing we wanted to do is to stay away from just kind of like the, uh, the nice and the beautiful and kind of like the, uh, oftentimes these books, they don't get into enough details. I'll be very transparent. We read these books and sometimes they can be entertaining, but we went right, right down to the fundamental things that a leader, a coach will have to deal with. So for instance, we have a chapter called the hatchet mm -hmm. where every coach at some point will have to cut a player or, or, or many players from a team. So how do you deal with that situation? Are you going to just write a list of names and put it on, on the wall and then just let the athletes go see, which, I mean, that sounds beautiful in a, in a Hollywood movie, but it's horrible for the kids to go through that process. So we give a bunch of tools, strategies to manage that situation better so you can be professional and use techniques and strategies that actually dictates, you know, your professionalism and who you are as a person. Um, so a bunch of examples like that in, and we wanted to make sure the chapters were short, snappy, and very uh, user-friendly so that you can take away some stuff. They're elements, right? That's, that's the purpose of our book. These are elements you can use um, immediately in, in whatever situation you're in. That's fantastic. Now, now uh, as I mentioned before, we, we just hit the, uh, the air here. The majority of our audience is at the high school collegiate levels here. Um, and in your uh, professional opinions, what would you say uh, are some of the differences between, you know, fostering team chemistry at those uh, high school and collegiate levels? Because, you know, just to take it one step further, I think of the collegiate to the professional level. And you hear of all the time of coaches not being able to translate, you know, their message from the coach or the collegiate level to that professional level. That level of motivation is not really there. Uh, that, that they may be able to, to deploy maybe the Bobby Knights of the world, maybe a, a little bit more uh, regimented style, uh, a college coach won't be able to break through to the professional athlete in the same way. Um, does that, is there that level of difference at the high school and collegiate level exist? 
Um, I, I, li I like the question a lot. So there's so many things I want to say in my answer. So I'll try to keep it uh, brief here. <laughs> but I think at, at the end of the day, what's really, really important, if you look at coaches who've had success over time, um, they were always able to adapt and change their leadership styles based on the context, based on this gen new generation of athletes or whatever generation they were dealing with. Uh, so they were not um, fixed have a fixed mindset with regards to their uh, leadership style that okay if i tried something with a team it will work with another one that's not how it is uh, i mm -hmm. gave the example the other day of uh, of a coach who's got 25 years of experience but you know when you dig a little bit when you ask questions you find out that the coach has 25 times the same year of experience this is not what we want this is not what we're looking for in order to achieve uh, collective success. So that being said, you need to be able to change how you approach different situations, how you approach different athletes based on where they are now today and, and where you want to go with, the, with uh, that athlete and, and, and with the team also. So to me, that's one of the first thing that is important. The second thing, um, we, we, we have a chapter, it's called um, Kilometer Zero. So Kilometer Zero, it's, I think it's our first chapter, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. But Kilometer Zero is your key principles. It's the center of a city, actually. Like if you, if you read the book, you'll understand what's, the, what's, the, what's a Kilometer Zero, but it's the center of a city. Uh, if you're in Barcelona, you put Madrid. Uh, it's going to bring you to kilometer zero, which is the center of the city of Madrid. So that being said, identifying your core, your DNA, your key principle um, as a coach, as a team will be will be so important. And then you're going to be able to always come back to those principles in order to address different situations, different type of teams that you're going to get, whether it's high school or college, that never changes. You need that DNA that is um, really, really important. So that that's for me too important factors that needs to be considered when, when dealing with the team. And regardless what level it is, you'll always have to deal with changing your leadership styles if you want to last and always adapt and change and keep in mind your key principles as a team uh, in order to always come back on them to them to, to reflect on. And if I can, uh, if I can add to the Andre's last point and then add something else mm -hmm. about the DNA, sometimes we work way too hard to try to find the perfect DNA, what it would be like our, our main values and principles. And sometimes it's just using what you have already. So just taking like your team name, for instance, let's say your baseball team is called the Vikings. Well, what is a Viking? You know, have you ever taken a moment with the players to actually research what is a Viking? And, you know, with Google now, like you can have so much fun doing that. You know, Viking probably represents, I, I don't know, I didn't Google it, but I'm, in, I'm assuming it represents like someone who's going to explore, someone who's going to protect, you know, someone who has a team. A Viking never, you know, fights alone. Um, and then you incorporate those into your team and you're making your guidelines. It just, it makes it creative. It makes it fun. And it's a great opportunity to build this with other individuals. It's not the coach that decides the DNA. It's actually the name of the team and the players um, that bring this information and you come up with it together. The second thing I wanted to um, to add, and we talk a lot about this in our book, we have a whole section called communication. And team chemistry for me has everything to do with communication. Coaches earn a living through communicating. Really, like how good are you at making your message stick to someone's brain? The best coaches, the best teachers are great at that. And so 
reflecting on how you ask questions. How many questions you ask? What are the questions you're asking? Are you telling more than you're asking? Uh, are you preaching more than you're creating collaborative, maybe with your with your assistant coaches and 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 to not be afraid to really get personal with your people. And I don't mean getting personal like there's there's boundaries you got to respect, but to actually care for the person. And I'm thinking like you know high school and collegiate kids, fourteen all the way to you know twenty. Like think back, uh, Wes and Andre, like just for ourselves when we were at that age, like you're discovering who you are, you're going from teenager to adult, like there's so much going on in your life and you're looking to hook on to great ambassadors, to great people, like I did with Andre when I first met him when I was 20. Yeah. Um, and that's why he's still in my life now. And so when someone shows someone else that you really care, you know, that a coach really gets integrated into the athlete's life, you know, the, the student's life, the human being's life, um, and the athlete feels felt. One of my favorite quotes, when someone feels felt, they will do anything for their coach afterwards. They will do anything for their boss, for their parent. And so I think in sport, we don't see enough of that. Actually just caring for someone else. And when you do that, you know, if you think of like this happening throughout the entire team with all of your coaches and athletes caring for each other, it's quite powerful. And that's how chemistry is created. And then you you, you know, you just, you add some, some fuel to that. And then it just becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's a great quote that you mentioned and one that that's, I've seen attributed to a couple of different people, but I've heard it kind of pop up recently is uh, I, I think most recently I've heard it from Teddy Roosevelt and it was uh, no one really cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And I think that's something that could be really ap applicable and kind of adjacent to what you were saying right there. Right. So, you know, you can know everything about what it is uh, about, about the topic at hand, about the sport that you're coaching. But uh, if you don't establish those relationships and communicate those feelings of, uh, of you know whatever uh to your team i, I think that's going to be lost right whatever whatever knowledge that you have 100 uh, percent, well said now when when the line is drawn between uh wh where do you draw the line between being maybe hyper focused on the task at hand before entering competition uh and maybe maybe taking a more relaxed approach to the game you know if it is is there a, a preferred method or is it just kind of dependent on, on the team or, or on the team's dna uh, for example well, so, so, something I've learned uh, and I've experienced it the, the hard way and I and I got, I guess the feedback came from the athletes. I remember my first couple of years at the world championship, like I was nervous, like it was my first championship, world championship as a head coach, mm -hmm. as it was for some of the athletes as well. And I remember very being very hyperactive, like walking in the dugout all the time and everything until one athlete said, and NGF was there. So he probably remembers. So until one athlete says, you know, when you when you do that, like it, it makes us even more nervous. So, OK, then uh, this is at the at that moment, this is where I started to arrive earlier in the dugout in a baseball environment for sure and making sure I had a chair. So as simple as that, like mm -hmm. being able to sit down during a game and send a different type of message to the athlete made a big difference on myself also made a big difference on the athletes and on myself it made me uh, in a better mindset to reflect on what's coming in the in in inning fourth fifth inning or whatever what's what's coming down during the course of the game made me in a clear mindset uh, to be more ready for uh, to, to anticipate what what's going to happen and i think it, it made the athletes 
uh, more relaxed. Uh, as you know, uh, as, as a batter, if you're nervous or if you're really, really tense at, 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 uh, at, the, at home plate, uh, to the point where you know, like you're you're holding the bat so tight that the juice is is coming out of the bat, then uh, you know, like uh, it, you you won't succeed. Uh, so I think as a coach, you need to set the tone. You need to show um, you, you show the way uh, to the athletes also. And I've learned that the hard way. But you know, at the end of the day, like I, I'm a person that I believe is really really open-minded and really really vulnerable as far as my practice. And I created that environment where they could tell me that. Athletes could tell me that in order mm -hmm. for me to get better. Because at the end of the day, if I don't get better, uh, they won't get better also. So I need to get better. And I need to be in an environment where I can create those moments or those contexts where people will give me feedback. Because like I was telling JF when we wrote the book, you know, and when you're a head coach of a team, um, you're responsible to give feedback to the athletes. You're responsible to give feedback and support the staff. But at some point, I asked myself, who's taking care of me here? Nobody, right? So if I want to get better, I need to give the responsibility to someone, whether it's someone from the outside to look at me and, and help me grow as a coach, or I give the responsibility to an assistant coach. Who will, that's, and that's the approach I took, where that person was responsible to give me feedback on my interventions with one athlete, with several athletes, with the team on my decision and so on and so forth. And it made me better uh, as, as a coach. But see, Wesley, if you take that example that Andre just shared, mm -hmm. so many coaches would have reacted differently. If the athlete went and went to them and say, when you walk around, you stress me out. A lot of coaches would have said, well, deal with it. Right. Because that's the, that's the way I am. Um, but to be smart enough and to be humble enough to accept that information and think about it and, and adapt and find solutions, I think that's what great coaches are all about. Um, there's a chapter we wrote called, um, it's not called leadership, it's called leader of the ship. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to explain that, you know, a team is a mirror of the leader. The athletes behave very similarly to how the coach behaves. Take any successful team. When you see a relaxed bunch of athletes on the field, mm -hmm. chances are the coach is pretty relaxed. If you see a bunch of athletes that are, you know, I think of professional hockey, for instance, that are taking stupid penalties, they're agitated on the bench, they complain. Well, you'll probably see the coach yelling and screaming off the bench mm -hmm. as well. Um, and this is, this is very, very important to consider. Um, and, you know, we have, there's an example we give in the book where, we, uh, we have here in Canada an alpine skier um, that was very talented and was at the, at the Olympic Games. And this is a story about the importance of getting personal so that you know what to say to the athlete at the right timing. You know, that's the artistic part of coaching. Mm -hmm. When to tell something, what to say. So this athlete, you know, she was about to go in her, in her last run that was going to determine where she was going to finish in the standings, if she was going to be on the podium or not. Um, and she started freaking out just about a minute before she was about to go down. And right beside her was her physiotherapist. And she just turned around. She looked at her physiotherapist because she trusted him. And she asked him, like, is this normal that I'm feeling like this? Like, I feel I'm going to puke. Like, I, I feel awful. I have a sore belly. And the physiotherapist, instead of, like, firing back, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, you're going to be okay. Or Which is very typical, right? Sometimes we, mm -hmm. don't, we don't take that split second or... He actually took a full second because he knew 
that by creating a gap in time is exactly what she needed. And then he just looked back at her and he said, this is the most important moment of your life. Like, of course it's normal that you feel this way. Right. And then she just, she cracked up. She started laughing. He laughed with her and she had about 10 seconds left before it was her mm-hmm. turn. And then three, two, one, she went down the hill and she won the gold medal at the Olympics. And she, and she talks about this story ever since and explaining the importance of having that great chemistry with her physiotherapist was one of the main reasons she was able to deliver when it counted the most. Yeah, and that, that reminds me also, JF, of um, you know the first World Cup final we um, we played. That was back in 2008. We're playing Japan. It's packed stadium, close to 20,000 people in, in Japan. And then it's really like tie game. I think at the end of fourth inning, and I at some point I instructed our pitching coach to go talk to the pitcher because we're kind of in, in a jam at some point. And went to calm thing. He said, "I don't know what I'm going to tell her." Like, oh, I said, "So he's going." So, and I'm looking from the dugout, and they seem to be having a, a, like a blast and having fun there. I said, "What's going on?" Like, so he comes back, and I asked him. I said, "What did you tell her?" Like, he said, "Well, I just told her a joke. That's it." And that changed that changed the inning. So that's it's the same type of approach, you know. When when you have that culture, you have that environment of of um, of being relaxed under pressure. Um, this is where you accomplish great things. And what I will just add quickly, Wesley, I know who this coach is and he would have said something particular to that athlete, but he would have said something different to another pitcher. Mm-hmm. He yeah. knew what to say to that, to that, to that athlete because he knew her very well. Um, and again, that's the artistic part of coaching. We don't, we can't read this in books. You don't, you can't mm-hmm. learn this in school. It's about feeling. It's about understanding who the individual is. Um, and again, that's what makes a great leader. And that's, that's what chemistry really does. Yeah. And I, th- I think those are two great examples of that. And when I was you know, thinking of that question, you know, I, I think of kind of a coach who, you know, when, when, if you haven't been there before, right. That's, that's kind of the phrase that you think of act like you've been there before. That's usually in reference to players or student athletes don't, or, you know, kind of be humble. But I think in the terms of coaches, you know, if you haven't been there before, you might, you might micromanage, you might show that nervousness and that might, you know, bleed out over to the team. But if you have been there before, you know what to expect. Everything kind of slows down for the moment and everything kind of comes at you instead of maybe you running towards every every problem and every solution, right? Yep. And, and I think in a, in a sense that can kind of be uh, similar towards negativity as a whole. I, I used to work uh, in the restaurant industry right? and the old phrase around the restaurant industry is that for every, uh, you know, if you have one bad review, that's going to get spread to 10 people. You know, and that, that's going to spread way faster than uh, one good review because you kind of expect to go out to eat and have a good meal. But when you have that bad meal, everyone's going to talk about it. Uh, the same can kind of be uh, with negativity, I think. Right. So how, how do you kind of nip that in the bud on a team uh, to avoid that spreading and, and kind of overflowing? You mind if I start, Jeff? Go ahead, Andre. <laughs> so so here's one thing that I've noticed over time. And Jeff, you can piggyback on that after. But. You know, in, in baseball, in team sports in general, when you make a mistake, um, there's a couple of things happening. One, you feel bad about it, um, and it's normal because you like to succeed as, a, as an athlete, and it's, uh, and it's normal not to feel good. But when you look at success, um, making a mistakes is part of learning. 
So therefore, as, as a coach, you need to find ways, and that's going to sound funny for people um, uh, listening, but you need to, to find a way to celebrate success. And those oops moments, Celebrate mistakes, you mean? Yeah, celebrate mistakes. Is this yeah. not what I said? Yeah, sorry. I think you said success. <laughs> success yeah, no, <laughs> celebrate mistakes. So, so in the book, we're talking about oops moments, uh, those, those little, um, uh, little mistakes that you're going to make. And how you can find a way to celebrate the fact that you take take a little bit of risks, and therefore um, enhancing learning uh, through through the process as well. So that's one thing. The the second thing also that I've noticed is that after a mistake, there's a tendencies for teammates to go and tap on the shoulder on uh, of of their teammates. Say it's okay, don't worry, you'll bounce back, and so on and so forth. But something I realized also is that when you make a mistake, especially in a team environment. Um, you don't want that tap on the shoulder. You you want time for yourself, and you want to live that moment because it's part of learning again. Um, but what's difficult is that you can't escape the playing field mm-hmm. to hide yourself. You, you you're still there. So here's something that I've created. We talk about in the book also is over time I notice this happening, and when I arrive in the dugout now, I arrive about 15 to 20 minutes before everyone. I leave batting practice early and I set up my dugout. And on one of the chair, I'll take tape and I'll put an X on one of the chair. So that X is, is, is a special, special chair. So if you, wanna, if you go and sit on that chair, is because you don't want to be bothered by anyone. You don't want anyone to come to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And when you make a mistake, when an athlete makes a mistake, sometimes I'm going to see one, she's going to go sit on the X and it's her moment. It's her moment to feel like outside of the playing field and reflect on what's happened and learning from that mistake also. It happened for me as a coach to go and sit on that X also. And you know what's funny with that is that I don't have to say anything because when I go sit on the X, it's because I'm not happy and they all see me sit on it. I don't have to yell at anybody. Uh, I don't have to demonstrate uh, physically that I'm not happy with the situation. Uh, but I send the same message at the same time. So, so failure for me uh, is, is, is so important and we don't put too enough uh, emphasis on it, um, whether it's individually, whether it's collectively, whether it's you as a coach also to get better. Um, and I think it's important to celebrate those uh, little mistakes by different means uh, that we talk in the book as well. So I, I'd like to add two things. Uh, thanks, Andre, for saying that. The book is awesome. You guys have to read it. There's so many things in there. Like We're so proud of what we wrote. But um, two things. So the first thing, when an athlete makes a mistake, regardless of the sport, as a coach, do you really have to remind them they made the mistake? Like, mm-hmm. they know they made the mistake. Do you really have to like rub it in and put your finger, you know, on, on, on that situation, say you were bad, you know, you got to pick it up or the athlete, the athlete knows like, and especially as they get older, like you don't need to tell them and to give them that space to be able to bounce back by themselves is so much more powerful because anything that we do ourselves, we don't require external help. Uh, we become so much more, you know, proud uh, and, and, and that we believe we can do it again in the future because we did it by ourselves. Um, and, and again, that's the artistic part of coaching. It's like, when do I go see the athlete? When do I don't? But I would argue there are more advantages to actually stay back and not say anything than to always go see the athlete and say, you were poor, you made a mistake, you were off the market. 
Like, come on, at some point, you don't have to remind them every single time. Okay. And the second thing I wanted to add is uh, during practices, you know, you're, you're, you're practicing a set play, let's say in basketball, um, you know, you're practicing an offensive play and, um, and at some point the team makes a bad pass because someone wasn't well positioned. What's typical? We whistle as a coach, stop the play and then explain what the problem is. But when the coach whistles, what goes on into the athlete's minds? Oh, is it me? Did I make the mistake? What's wrong? Is he going to yell at us? Is he going to tell us again that we suck? Yada, 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 yada. And our limbic system, which is very protective, will dramatize. So even before the coach starts speaking, we start freaking out. So what we actually explain in the book is it's okay to do that once in a while to whistle to correct something, but to actually do it with good things as well. Could you imagine like the, the team makes three or four quick passes, really, really, really good passes. Then you whistle, you stop the play and you tell the players, you guys were awesome. That was a great play. Your feet were well positioned. You were there when you needed to be there. And coaches don't do that enough. They really don't. And so I think it's a counterbalance. If you are going to pick out some mistakes and correct them, it's, it's, it's difficult most oftentimes those situations for athletes. So do the same by praising them once in a while. You're going you're gonna to surprise them um, maybe at the beginning, but uh, at some point, athletes really do appreciate that. And it's just feeding their confidence and make them understand what they must do over and over again in order to have success. I think that's fantastic. And, and staying with JF here, you know, what, what do you find in common with, with the elite athletes uh, you know, across all sports who you work with? You know, what, what are they hoping to achieve when they come to meet you from a, from a mental coaching aspect? Well, there, there, there are several things. Um, but the one thing I will say is most uh, – I'm very fortunate, Wesley, because the majority of my clientele are some of the best in the world. I, I get mm -hmm. to work with our top Canadian Olympians and a lot of amazing pro athletes – and also like surgeons that are top in their fields or musicians, uh, top executives. And um, most of them come see me, not because they have problems. It's because they want to become better. Mm -hmm. and, and I think mental training is still misunderstood. Like we, we oftentimes go see a sports psychologist or a mental performance coach because we, we were weak or, you know, we, we, we choke or, uh, but if you think of physical training, does an athlete only physical train? Does an athlete only lift weights or, or work with a strength conditioning coach when they're weak physically? Of course not. They work mm -hmm. with them regularly so they become stronger, more powerful, more flexible, right? So that's my style with my clientele. Mm -hmm. I don't work with them because they have problems or weak. I work with them because they want to they have an edge. They want to be you know, tougher, stronger mentally. So they can be more, uh, you know, resilient, more confident, more focused. Um, and well, I, what I, I will add to that is, you know, they, um, they're curious individuals. They're always seeking or looking to find out what they can do to have an edge. And I think if we think of leaders, coaches, mm -hmm. the best I've seen, it's the same thing. They don't only wait until they're weak or they have problems to go equip themselves, to go read a book or or to work with a consultant or to seek for advice from their, from their assistant coaches. No, they just do it all the time because they want to have an edge because they want to improve. I think Andre, I know Andre very well and I've seen him in action. He's a great example of that. He doesn't wait to be weak, to get stronger or, you know, to, we, I like to say to be sick, to get healthier, you know, like 
it's this concept of a problem to fix. No, we don't fix problems. We want to make sure that we always give tools, advice, tips, so that regardless if you're an athlete or a coach, you're just always looking to get better. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be sick to get better. That's the goal. I like, I like that. To, be sick to get better. I like that a lot. Now we, we always hear about the uh, the term the glue guy, the clubhouse guy on a team. Uh, might be a, a backup, a veteran, someone who uh, you know maybe not maybe is not a, a high performing player on the field, but uh, what they bring to the clubhouse or to the program may outweigh that. Um, in your experience, what are some qualities that these athletes possess, and how important are they to successful teams? Well different things with this is, is first thing uh, first at the start of the year you need you need to identify who, who's who on your team who can do uh, mm-hmm. the, the different roles uh, and so on and so forth and identify um, the different connection between those athletes before you can even command com- <clears throat> something so um, on our book we talk about that too we have a chapter about social grammar and a sociogram is basically an activity uh, that you can do uh, as a coach in order to understand connections uh, between your athletes and identify who could play um, a leadership role or who is uh, sometimes a little bit more, maybe a little more isolated from the rest of the group also. And how can you bring him or her back to the rest of the uh, to the center of the team? So there's that that tool for me has been super important over time. And, and, and trying to spend enough time with each of your players. Um, it, it's interesting when you reflect, when you self-reflect after a practice or after a game and you ask yourself as a coach, have I talked to everybody today? Uh, sometimes the answer, oh, maybe not, maybe two or three that I haven't talked about, t- talked to uh, during the course of practice or game. And that little trend could, um, could continue to go for over a couple of days so you can end up after a week or maybe two weeks not having talked to little Wesley on, the, on your team and therefore when you don't do that um, most of the time you lower your expectations you give him less feedback and your the potential of Wesley to become better uh, is suddenly uh, diminished by that um, so that being said on a team everyone has a role to play I like personally um, in, instead of comparing athletes uh, among them on the team, I'd like to compare them um, with someone on, on the other team. For an example, um, if I have a backup catcher in baseball, I'm going to challenge my backup catcher to be the best in the world, the best backup catcher in the world. If mm-hmm. I have one that has a specific role as a pinch runner, for example, so those are the ones coming late in the game because they have some speed and they can score run when they're in, they're in scoring position, I want her to become the best pinch runner in the world. So that challenged them to be not only to try to find a way to be in the starting lineup all the time, which I want also, but I wanted to be proud of being the best at something that someone else on the team is, is not even capable of doing. So, so for me, that has been something that, uh, that, that has worked. So I don't know, JF, what you think? Mm-hmm. Well, what I will add is um, we are strong believers, Wesley, uh, Andre and I, that a coach doesn't, coach a team a coach coaches individuals that are part of a team Mm -hmm. and and when you go into practice and games with that uh, framework uh, it's completely different and and in the end 
it's it's essentially that's what it is. You're dealing with hu- different human beings that have different backgrounds, that have different assets, that have different potentials, uh, that like to be taught different ways. And and when you think about it this way, I've noticed, you know, especially in this new generation, um, the best coaches take care of their people, and you can only really take care of someone when you pay attention to someone individually. Um, so the best coaches, I think, don't coach teams. They coach individuals that are part of a team. And I think that's that's a very interesting point, but it brings up a question of, um, you know, having rules that would apply for the whole team and maybe uh, specialty rules for maybe, uh, you know, uh, uh, better players, you know, priority, favoring, favoritism. You know, where do you draw that line as a coach there between coaching as an individual? Because, you know, I, I'm thinking I've been going back and watching The Last Dance. And I, what I loved about Phil Jackson throughout all that that great Chicago Bulls run is that, like, much like you were just saying, he coached individually uh, and letting Dennis Rodman go have, you know, blow off some steam in the playoffs to Las Vegas when, you know, that, that may be questionable, whatever. But, you know, he, he ended up working, winning the title. So, you know, where do you draw that line between – maybe playing favoritism and then coaching as an individual. I think, I think the first thing is we, we just have to be careful between uh, coaching professionals and coaching mm-hmm. athletes and development. I think we, as a coach have sometimes different roles um, where education sometimes plays a, a, a greater uh, role in, in what we do as coaches. So I think it's important to nuance um, that approach uh, between the two type of coaches. Um, but but at, at the end of the day, you know, like we, we look at rules and, and to me that's I've always been amused by the fact that in most teams, the coaches are making the rules mm-hmm. and the players are not athletes are not even involved in, ma- in making those rules. And, and and I've tried I've tested so many things on, on athletes and teams o- over time. And one thing I've tried at some point is let, let's make the rules with the athletes, see what they're going to come up with. Like I, I've started a, a, a university course at some point with no syllabus. I asked the athlete, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to learn? Let's build a syllabus together. And we did that. Okay, it's out of the box a little bit, but it worked. So, mm-hmm. and I realized that when the uh, athletes are involved in the process, uh, when something happens that someone breaks the rule, they're going to be even tougher than you as a coach for sanction. And they're going to deal with, with it internally without sometimes you being, being, being involved. So I think that that speaks a lot about when we talk about collaboration, we talk about communication in our book, we talk about working as a unit. Um, it, it's not always about you as a coach. It's about the collective. It's about the, the individuals on the team, as Jeff mentioned. And you, you got to try different things to see where it's going to lead you. And, and Wesley, when I talk about getting personal and coaching individuals that are part of a team, mm-hmm. it's a two-way street. You know, the coach needs to get interested into the athlete, but the athlete needs to feel comfortable to actually go knock on the coach's door and, and share their needs. Mm-hmm. You know, we, Andre and I always get a, a good laugh when we think about a coach that says, you know, my, my door my door is always open. How many times do we hear that? Coaches are leaders saying, you know, you can come to me, my door is always open, but if people don't show up at your door, there's a problem. There's something you're not doing right. You know, you're, your door is probably closed uh, or, or, you know, the setup, the psychological safety that's set up in your, in your team is problematic. Your athletes don't feel comfortable going to see you. And so, um, you know, when, when you take a head coach that's responsible, let's say of a baseball team and you have 
let's say more or less 20 players on the team. Well, it's one human being that's taking care of 20 different mm-hmm. individuals. And so you as a coach, your head is split in 20. For an athlete, you only have one person to rely to really. Yeah, okay, you can rely on your teammates as well. But in terms of like understanding what the coach wants and the coach understanding what you want, you have to feed the coach as well with information. And then when you do that properly, the coach will coach you differently because he or she has additional information based on how you're doing that day, for instance. And so to set up a culture in your team where communication can flow, regardless if you're winning or losing, regardless if it's beginning of the season or, or later in the season, it is essential. Because like I said a while ago in our talk, everything is based on communication. Mm-hmm, when you mm-hmm. talk about chemistry, it stems from the quality of communication you will have in your team. Um, and we have eight chapters in our book that gives a bunch of ideas to improve that. Awesome. Well, well the book is Team Chemistry. It is available. Uh, wh- where is it available? I know it's available currently, but where can the people get a hold of it? Any- anywhere books are sold? Or I-, I know there's a-, a big push for the digital uh, copy as well. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure about all bookstores, but for sure online, you know, Amazon or any uh, major bookstores that sell books online, you'll find it for sure. Um, and it, it is available on um, on uh, audio version as well. So um, yeah, you'll find it if you just Google it, you'll find it. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you very much, JF and Andre. And, and before we let you go, where can the people get in touch with you if they have any follow up questions from this conversation or would like to hear more from you? I would say for me, uh, the, the best way is social media. We're pretty mm-hmm. easy to find. I believe on I'm on Twitter. JF is on Twitter also. Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Facebook. So we're pretty easy to find that way with our first and last name. Yeah, same thing as Andre said. I'm I'm active on social media or my company website, cambioperformance.com. All right. And you can follow all of our brands on Twitter as well. Uh, that's at coach underscore AD, at train condition, at winning hoops. And then myself, as always, if you like, at Wesley Sykes underscore. Uh, and you'll want to follow those accounts to get a first look at who our next guest will be for sideline sessions. But until then, sports fans, once again, my name is Wesley Sykes. And thank you for listening to this edition of Sideline Sessions. Thank you, JF and Andre. Thank you. Thank you.